Welcome listeners to Drop Everything Podcast number 52. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and on this podcast I talk with comedy juggler, yo-yo expert, keynote speaker, and all-around nice guy, Mark Hayward. Before we get to that conversation, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the most important sponsor there is, that's right, International Jugglers Association. They put on a yearly festival, have a great website full of articles, e-juggle, so much more at juggle.org. Check them out and join this great group of jugglers today. The second sponsor is the Ring Dama. That's the toy I invented, which is a perfect stocking stuffer for Christmas. So go to ringdama.com, or if you want the LED Zing Dama, go to Zing Toys and get one today. All right, buckle in, drop everything, get ready for Mark Hayward. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast. This is podcast number 52, and we have a special guest. Hello, Mr. Mark Hayward. How are you doing, Mark? Hello, I'm doing great. And where have I caught you? Are you in Chicago? Is that right? Uh, I am back home in Madison, Wisconsin, but only for a few days. And are you involved with the, the circus? I know they're trying to build a new circus facility out there in Madison. Is that something you're involved in? Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the, uh, the capital campaign committee for the Madison Circus Space. We actually just hit a super exciting milestone. We were at uh, a finance level where it was unclear whether we were going to be able to build our new fancy pants facility, and we just got a, a really big anonymous donor, and so now we've crossed the line to we can definitely do it, but we've still got some more work to do to raise enough money to make the facility as good as we want it to be. And what does a fancy pants circus center have? Well, it has capabilities for all the things that we really want. Of course, there's the you know, wide open floor space, which can be for juggling and for German wheel. And What kind of square footage are you doing there? You know, I have to admit that I don't have that information in my brain. I've been brought on as the, uh, the glitz and glamour guy <laughs> to try to assist with connections and talking to people. But it's big. It's bigger than right. what we've got right now. I'm not sure if the final decision has been made, but there's been some talk of making it the right configuration to allow for flying trapeze in addition to all the other stuff that we already do. So there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, so you said German wheel. What else was there? Is German wheel? Yeah. So I, of course, think that juggling is the main thing that happens there. <laughs> okay. But probably in reality, aerial is yeah. the main thing that happens. We've got a lot of different students and classes that do aerial of, of various kinds. We also have hula hoopers come and enjoy the space. So we have got a big hoop jam every week. And then Madison has turned into a mecca for the wheel arts. So both German wheel and sear wheel. We've got tons of wheels that are owned by the circus space. And of course, their storage of individually owned wheels. And we've got both the current women's and men's national champions and each of them i think are multiple time champions so it's kind of wheel crazy here in madison interesting and what what time of year is your uh, festival again is that takes place at the circus center the the mad fest yeah so mad fest is always the weekend before martin luther king day so it's usually the middle of january this okay. year it's going to be january 12th 13th and 14th and uh we have the current the existing circus space isn't big enough for Madfest, but we're hoping that the new space will be. So this year we will be at some facility in town, perhaps a school or something right. like that. But uh, yeah, we're hoping that that Madfest 2019 will take place in the circus space. Yeah, I remember when I did the festival, I came up to MC one year, and we met at the circus space, and we had there was like an open juggling night, but then we went yeah. to a school 
for the festival and the show and things like that. I had a great time there. It was a bit cold in January. Yeah, especially if you've come from a tropical wonderland like Los Angeles. It's, uh, it can be a bit of a shock. Yeah, we don't do much ice fishing in, in uh, California. I know I offered to hook it up for you if you wanted to do some ice fishing while you were here, but I can right. understand why you might not want to. And there was some joke he made about ice fishing. I forget what it was. Do you remember? It was like, was it about <laughs> snot or something or frozen um, snot? Or... You know, some people call it boogers, but it's snot. I don't think it was that one. No, no. It was just the idea of sitting around a, a, in a frozen little tent, you know, on the lake, you know, some frozen, like a hole cut in the lake. And it just sounded awful to me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did not want to go. But uh, it was interesting because I said, I don't think I've ever seen anybody ice fishing before. So it was certainly a. A unique experience for me. So, yeah. and what year? What year is it going to be? How many uh, festivals have you had out there? Well, so this year is going to be the 47th annual. Whoa! Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. That is <laughs> exciting. Any plans already? Any special guests or anything uh, in the works? Or yeah, actually, we've already got our, our special guest booked. Uh, Wes Peden is going to be our our special guest. Wes Peden, yeah. that yeah. guy. And well, he's I... coming in straight from Sweden, so he's going to smell delicious. And right, the right. juggling is going to be incredible. Peden from Sweden, yeah. And yeah, I just saw him in uh, Water on Mars in New York. Yeah. yeah. So, man, so good. Well, when I did the IGA Festival, my first choice was to get uh, Water on Mars. So, you know, Wes Peden and Tony mm -hmm. and Patrick. Any mm -hmm. chance you have to get any of those guys, especially Wes, yeah. I think he's probably, you know, I don't know technically or how you determine who's the best or whatever, but he's got to be one of the most creative, uh, prolific mm -hmm. Just and they're really a nice guy. Easy, you know, easy to talk to and approach. And I'm a big West yeah. Peden fan, so I approve of that choice, Mark Peden. Yeah, definitely. And we've got uh, we've got some other people coming too. Uh, Chloe Wallier is going to be here, mm -hmm. and if tour schedule allows, Tom Wall. Right. Uh, we've got Joe Showers, Tony Steinbach, awesome comedian from Canada named Mike Wood, and uh, Kurt Carlisle. I know, but I've worked with Mike Wood. I work. Yeah, he has the uh, awesome. he does the tri the catapult that he catches the cabbage on his head. Exactly. Yep. He's the love child of Mark of Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol. I forget because he's kind of a pale uh, Mick Jagger looking kind of character. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. He's like yeah, Mike Wood. Well, is he going to MC the show? No, I'm going to MC it, but okay. uh, Mike will fill the show with hilarity. Yes. Well, you never have enough hilarity in the show. So, <laughs> hey, speaking of hilarity, let's talk about the <laughs> hilarious upbringing of Mark Hayward. So, you grew up in Madison. I did. Yeah. And what was the life like as a kid in Madison, and when did juggling appear to you? Uh, I don't think of my childhood as particularly uh, noteworthy in one way or another. Suburban child of parents at the university and all that. But I actually learned a three-ball cascade in middle school. My brother taught me how to do it. And like I think happens to a lot of people, it never occurred to me that there was any more to juggling than that. Right. So I didn't do anything with it until high school. My junior year of high school, at Christmas time, I got a yo-yo in my stocking for Christmas, and my buddy John Feynman got the complete juggler by Dave Finnegan in, for Christmas himself. And so he and his brother Ben Feynman and then IJA champion Matt Henry and I started a juggling club. And for some reason, Matt Henry and John Feynman decided from the very beginning that they were going to become professional jugglers. So really, from day one, we started working on a show. Well, I know Matt did. I don't know. I'm not familiar with uh, John Heinemann. John Feynman. John Feynman. And Frank. Yeah, and he's he's not really in the juggling scene anymore. He was pretty heavy into it for a long time. I think that he's a lawyer in San Francisco now. But I, 
I, I don't know. His, he's not a, a Facebook guy, so I've lost track of him. Well, some people, like you say, juggling is, first of all, there's like a box you could check off. Like, okay, now I can juggle. Right. And, and Which is like three balls, and you can juggle. And there's people who get into it for a little bit, maybe because of a situation or a group of people they're involved with. And then after a while, the interest fades. And then there's our, us, the few crazy people or whatever, the few sane people, who realize <laughs> how special juggling is and go, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And I'm going to try to make my life revolve around it if I can. Did, were you like these guys, always wanting to be a professional from the start? No. And in fact, it's really funny looking back on it. It really didn't occur to me for many, many years that I even could be a professional juggler. And it's especially weird because I realized at that time, I knew on a first-name basis two full-time professionals, and shortly after I learned to juggle, I met three more. So just in the Madison area, I knew five full-time professional jugglers, and yet it didn't occur to me that it could be a job for me. Did you think they had something that you didn't, or what made them special? It wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't that I felt they were better than me or anything like that. It just didn't – the thought didn't cross my mind. And in undergrad, I would do street performing with – with Matt Henry in Madison, and then the summer of 1992, we spent the entire summer street performing in New York City. We had auditioned at South Street Seaport, and we got a slot there. We also did Central Park, and we performed in front of the, the Met. And uh, you know, I learned a ton that year, but even after that, even though I was a professional juggler, it didn't occur to me to do it as a career. It wasn't until I went off to grad school and I, I decided I needed to do a solo street show. I was hanging out with the Champaign-Urbana jugglers and Chris LaRue and their ilk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did my first solo street show in my first summer of grad school. And then the following, when I got back to school that following school year, I just sort of out of the blue got two really good paying corporate yo-yo gigs. And grad school wasn't going that well. I was doing art and it just, uh, I, I realized that my choice was that I could sit in a basement by myself and make things and try to sell them right. or I'd be on stage in front of a bunch of people and make everyone laugh. And I had this realization that it was actually that in our culture, in our country, it's easier to be a professional juggler than it is to be a professional artist. Oh, I would, I would agree with that. So you were in college, you were an art major. That was your, yeah. your field of study? Yeah which has been immensely helpful, actually, as an entertainer. In what way? Do you say because there's parallels, or how, how do well, you mean that? Or do you mean I, I that sarcastically? That, no, 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 I'm not being sarcastic no. at all. I think right. that, that, first of all, the basic, most important skill you need as an artist, and one that you should be learning in art school, is the ability to take criticism and give criticism. So when I've got a, I'm doing a performance and someone like yourself says, hey, I've got a couple notes for you, I don't get all defensive. I can accept what you have said, and I can decide whether I want to incorporate it into the show or not. So that ability to accept criticism in a constructive way is critically important. But I think also the idea that you can live your life in a way that's not usual, that's, that's outside of the normal 9-to-5 job. Without that understanding, you really can't be self-employed and you can't be an entertainer. And then also the physical skills that I learned from sculpture and woodworking and metalsmithing so that I can make, if I think of a prop, I can just make it or I can have the knowledge to know that I can't make it and I need to call somebody like my buddy Crash to do some fabrication. People underestimate the amount of eye-hand coordination in art, like to draw or paint. 
it's very hand-eye oriented and the skills of a juggler because I find I like to do art I like to draw there's similarities in everything isn't there similarities in art or music to juggling and the yeah, skills that absolutely. cross over are interesting and I think I think that the, the having a creative mind, which is something that you can have through training. Obviously, some people have more naturally than others, but you can train yourself to be creative. And especially as an entertainer, you have to come up with creative solutions for the obvious things, like how you're going to have a good routine or a good show. But you also have to come up with creative solutions for, you know, how do I get this particular microphone to work in my circumstance? Or how do I get all this stuff to fit into this trunk? Sure. So there are a lot of ways that creativity helps you. Or how do I write that letter to the, to the client that's going to get me the gig? How do I be creative? Because yeah. a lot of people don't think the marketing can be creative. They're always like, I like the show. I don't like the marketing. But the marketing can be creative. And you know, being on the phone with somebody, trying to put together a video, trying to figure out the right, you know, right things to impress the client to get the gig. I, I think yeah. creativity is everywhere. But some people, I guess, don't see it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I, and I think also being open to trying to do things yourself if you can, but then also having that understanding of the things that you can't do. While I have a lot of training in visual arts, I learned eventually that graphic design is something that just isn't in my skill set. But thankfully, there are other people who can do that well, and I can get them to do the job for me. Yeah, and you need a professional kit. You need a professional promo. You need to know, okay, I could do it, but can mm -hmm. I do it the best? And if you want to get paid well and you want to get good gigs... You can't sort of half-ass it. You have to actually put out a quality product. Exactly. What, what confuses me about juggling sometimes is that some people do approach it with a very uncreative fashion. Like their desire is to learn already pre-established tricks. Like to mm -hmm. learn seven balls or five club back crosses, certainly an achievement, but there's really very little creative component to it unless you figure out, well, my practice is what's creative. The way I approach the practice is creative. Because to mm -hmm. me, I see juggling as a template to express myself creatively. So to me, it's, I develop the skills in order to then see what I can do with them and see how I can twist them and what, what original concepts I can come up with. Do you feel that some people approach juggling in an uncreative fashion and that maybe they could get more enjoyment if they realize that? Well, I think certainly some people approach it in a non-creative way, but I think it's also important to acknowledge how many different kinds of brains there are even within our juggling community. Creativity and humor is immensely important to both me and you, but it isn't necessarily the way everyone's brains work. And I think of a, uh, a scientific glassblower who I met in Pittsburgh. She's the woman who makes the, the really high-tech things for chemistry experiments, the kind of things that you would see in Dr. Frankenstein's lab, you know, curly cues of glass and beakers fused to this and lines and all that stuff. And I talked to her for quite a while, and I finally realized, and I, and I asked her, so is the thing that really makes you happiest in this endeavor, is it the ultra precision? And she said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that in the juggling community, I think we have the same thing. I, I don't have a particular juggler in mind, but right. someone who is really all about the precision of that nine ball throw or, right. or whatever it may be. Like, I think that's a, a very valid way of going about it, too. I have a friend who's a performer, and I'm a big believer in – you know, having a structure on stage, having an act, but then being very spontaneous, being very improv-based, building off of that structure. And my friend is very much like the guy who every show appears to be the same. Like you mm -hmm. see him and everyone's the same. And I thought, wow, how do you do that? What are you getting out of that? Because I couldn't approach it that way. Mm -hmm. He explained to me, he said, 
He goes, I want it to be so solid and I want to be so sure of it that I can explore little tiny moments. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, that's valid. It's not what I would approach it. But like you're saying, just because you wouldn't approach it that way, to me it's all about understanding. Like once I understand that what's someone getting out of it or that their mind doesn't work that way, I can see why they're approaching it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, what do you think as far as practice? Do you have a practice regime you do now? Because you're, you're currently doing a lot of shows, and we'll get into your, your career as a professional. Do you feel that a lot of people, once they get the act together, they stop? Like the creativity part stops because they have their product? Or do you feel that people can go on past having the product creatively? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a, a really huge pitfall for anyone who just decides to go in the direction of being a performer is you spend, at the beginning of your career, you spend so much time and effort just trying to have enough material that the show is finally long enough, just trying to get up to 45 <laughs> minutes or 60 sure. minutes or whatever. And so once you get there, it's, it's like, oh, I made it. Then the next step is trying to have 60 minutes that where you're not embarrassed of any of it. Right, there's no and then, Yeah, and then the step that comes after that is, oh, no, now I have another 15 minutes, but it doesn't fit. I have to take something good out in order to put this in. Yeah, I think it's very easy for performers to get stuck. Like once you get that to that mark of however much material you need to stop working, and it's always been my goal to not do that. But it's hard because if you don't have a solid reason to work on something, if you don't, if you're not being forced by your job, it's sometimes hard to keep working. But yeah, I think that the most of my favorite performers have all figured out a way to force themselves to continue to be creative. For me, I do a lot of MC work, both working at juggling conventions, but also at corporate events or whatever else. And that way I can do my tried and true material, but I still have the ability to to come up with new stuff and to try new things out. You also do shows with uh, other people. Do you find that also helps to revitalize your creative spark? And what do you get out of the the work with others? Do you feel it it detracts from your solo work? I mean, because you have teams with... uh, like Jonathan Burns, there are right. times you work together, and there's times, yeah. obviously, you work solo. How does that fit into your overall career path? Well, I think that the first thought in my mind when there's an idea of doing a project with somebody else, like I've done a few videos with Marcus Monroe, mm-hmm. is the very first thought in my mind is, oh, this is going to be so much fun because these are some of my favorite people in the world, and just the to have the privilege of being able to work with them and and not just be alone on the road all the time. Like, it's great to be able to work with friends. But it's also nice if you can find someone who complements and contrasts your skills. And for the, the two-man show that I do with Jonathan Burns, that's it's a perfect example. When he is on stage by himself, he has to rein himself in a little bit because if he gets too weird, he can repel the audience. Yes. So, so he's the goofy guy. I'm the straight man. And... It, in fact, it took a lot of time and uh, fortitude to learn how to be a straight man. It's hard because it, it can feel like you're surrendering the laughs to the other guy. But Jonathan is so creative. He has so many ideas that anytime we're working on something together, it's just it's a joy because we get to do all these crazy things. And he has ideas that I would not have thought of. And I have direction that I send him in as well. So it's just it's so much fun to have that that collaboration. And you guys did Letterman together, and he had, like, my favorite role because I would love to be on a show and have, like, no pressure. And he, his role was to have hold a book of matches between his teeth. 
Exactly. And yeah. You would light it by. I did loop the loop with a yo-yo, and I lit the entire book of matches at once. So, big flame, smoke explosion in his face. Perfect, stupid human trick. I think perfect. Thank you. I it really enjoyed it. I thought it was because it didn't take that long. It had a good payoff. It was interesting, and it seemed doable. Because you, you don't want to go on those shows with something that's like iffy. You know, you want to have something that has a payoff. Yeah, and that for the stupid human segment, stupid human trick segment, Letterman would bring on six acts for every show, even though they knew they were only going to bring three, or they're going to use three on the air. And it was because, yeah, a lot of people weren't pros, so they couldn't necessarily do their trick, or sometimes it didn't look good or didn't work on camera for whatever reason. When we went out for our rehearsal, we did the the trick once, and I said, hey, can you do it again? And we just did it again, and I, I knew that, that we were in because we had just proven that, yeah, we could do it every time. Yeah, it's about being successful, you know, on those shows. It's about sort of doing what the format asks you to do. That's sort of why I think I didn't go out to do Letterman or even try because it was on the East Coast. And when I heard that some people went out there and they didn't even get on the show. Yeah. Uh, and we were, you know, me and Barry were doing Carson, so I guess we felt we were sort of West Coast. But I regret not trying at least to try mm-hmm. to get on the Stupid Humor Tricks. You know what surprises me sometimes is how few performers try. That's true. Like there's that, there was that one on uh, Leno, which was, you know, win a meal, meal or no meal. Right. Yeah. And I got on that show, you know, uh, even though I'd been on Carson with Barry and done other spots. Mm -hmm. But I thought for all the people who don't have Carson on their credits, on their resume, why isn't every juggler trying to get on these shows? Absolutely. In fact, I'm going to put this out there right now. I have a contact with the guy who books the acts for the bar tricks segment on the late, late show with James Corden. I've done it. Jonathan Mearns has done it. Josh Casey has done it. So if anyone listening to this podcast, if you have a trick that you think could work in that format, watch the videos, see what kind of things they do. It doesn't have to be bar related. If anybody wants to try to be on that show, give me a holler and I will put you in contact with my guy at the late, late show. Because, you know, nowadays, I don't think those shows have as much impact. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't be taking advantage of every show that uses variety. Because Absolutely. That's, that's a slim number. Yeah, and my, my professional outlook is that I, of course, want to be successful myself. But I also want to bring all my friends with me. So if I have an opportunity that I can share, I, I, want, I want my people to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, why not? And that also, the more sort of successful, effective variety that's out there, mm-hmm. the more it helps our entire industry. Absolutely. And the more sucky people out there. Did I, ever, I don't know if I ever told this story on the podcast. I won't mention the name of the act. I might have told this story before. But we were, we were uh, scheduled to do the um, Pat Sajak show. Mm. Pat, Pat Sajak had a show for two minutes. Like one of these, you know, Magic Johnson had a show. Pat Sajak had a show. Right. Chevy Chase had a show. You know, Howie Mandel. And they had another act, another juggling act on. They'd already booked us. They had an act on like three or four weeks earlier. Another juggling act. And I watched their performance and it didn't go well. And Pat Sajak said, well, I don't want to have any more jugglers. Mm-hmm. Because jugglers don't work on our show. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Or I didn't like the jugglers. I don't want you know any more jugglers. And they canceled our performance. Mm-hmm. Because of this other act. You know, I think that does affect us. The, 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 the opinions of juggling. So... There are times I see a juggler working, and there was a, a – and I'm really bad at this. I'm really bad. When I see an act that I really think is just, just you know, really diminishing the, the quality of juggling in general, mm-hmm. then I'll go up to them and sort of – I don't know. It's hard for me to be civil. I mean, and just go like, what are you guys doing? Can't you put more effort into it than that? Why are your props all broken? 
I know that the audience is buying it because the audience will buy a very low level juggling act. Yeah. Which yeah. is funny because if you look at singing, if someone got up and went like, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, you know, it's like a really basic bad singing. People would be like, this is terrible. This is not good. Mm-hmm. But just even basic juggling, you know, even six clubs, it satisfies them. Like that's juggling. That's enough. But it doesn't really move our art form forward when you see that. I feel like that is changing a little bit. I'm not sure that the general public has as much patience for juggling as they once did. But certainly, I've had the experience that you've had where I've seen an act that I, is just terrible, and the audience seems to like it well enough, and they're making a living, and it kind of makes you wonder why do you spend so much time trying to be good. Well, it's a difficult time nowadays. I kind of feel as if people are a little bit blind to magic in the world. Like if you're out in the park juggling, you could be really good. A lot of people don't even want to look because they feel if they look, somehow they're involved or somehow Mm. they're complicit with what you're doing. Because I've been doing stuff in the park sometimes where I think this is interesting stuff. This is unusual stuff to see in this situation. And you see some people walking towards you and you're like, okay, they're going to notice what I'm doing and in some way this will affect them. And you go, oh, no, they don't even notice. They don't want to acknowledge it. And I just find that really off-putting in this world, that we're not open to seeing unusual things or going up to people we don't know and saying, hey, what are you doing? That's interesting. I like that. Right. You know, I think what you're doing is cool. It saddens me that, that people don't seem nowadays to want to acknowledge people in that way. Do you, mm-hmm. do you feel that or am I alone in that? Um, I think you're not alone. What it says to me more than anything is it just reminds me of why I love jugglers so much. We when get it, I don't we? To, yeah, <laughs> we I mean, it. when I went to my first juggling convention, I was like, yes, these are my people forever. That adults who still have curiosity and are still, still understand how to play. This year, I've been trying to go to all the juggling conventions. Obviously, I have to miss a few. Sometimes on the same weekend. Sometimes I actually have to do my job. <laughs> yeah, you've gone to a lot. Which ones have you gone to this year? Oh, man, I've been to so many. It's been great. Obviously, MadFest is the right. first one. But then I've been to it's my first time at, at Kansas City, which was uh, a ton of fun. And went to Mondo Fest again, Austin Fest, Boulder Fest. Let's see what else? I was just at Pass Out. You did IJA because I, I saw you. At yeah, the I was IGA. at the IJA. You, you were the king of snacks. I was the king of snacks. I yeah, that was uh, that was a big deal. I went to RIT and any foreign ones? Any ones like out of the country or? Well, unfortunately, the, the way to do the year of going to all of the juggling conventions, the way to do that right is to have a lot of money right. or a lot of frequent flyer miles or both. And unfortunately, I had neither. So <laughs> I haven't been able to go to any that were going to cost me a significant amount of money. But uh, I do hope to go to the, the EJC next year. And that's in some, like an island, right? Like in the Andives or somewhere like the, that? The or? Azores Islands. Azores. Huh. Yeah. I hear it's going to be kind of a small EJC because it's harder for people to get there. But I don't know. sounds idyllic to me. So I hope I can make it work, but we'll see. I think if I had my, my druthers, if I had one choice, I'd probably pick the Japanese Juggling Festival. Mm, okay. I think they do very interesting things. I like Japan. I'd like to go back to Japan anyways. Mm-hmm. But I find their juggling there is very uh, creative, especially their work with cigar boxes and devil sticks and mm-hmm. the auxiliary props. So I think that would be the one on my bucket list. EJC is too yeah. big for me. 
I, I feel like I need to experience it because it's hard for me to imagine that many jugglers. I just felt it, it, you know, like I went to a couple flow festivals this year. That was new for me. I went to uh, Fire Drums and I went to Mops, mm-hmm. which is a okay. manipulation festival by Marvin Ong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I kind of felt like in some ways it was like the European ones. Like for me, I need a gym. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like to juggle just outside, you know, or in a tent. Right. Right. If, I, if I'm going to go somewhere to juggle or to a convention, I want a, a space that makes it conducive for me to, to juggle all day and, and get better. So, mm-hmm. Like, unfortunately, I went to Portland uh, this year, mm-hmm. and they, they lost their lower gym space. Yeah. yeah oh, you were there too, tough. right, right. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, they lost two-thirds of their space the night before. Yeah, the night before. And I didn't really feel I could do my thing. You know, I, I really felt there wasn't enough room to really have a good practice session once I was out there. So it's important to me to have a good, a good space you yeah. know, at these festivals. Yeah. So. Yeah. so what, so what, you got any festivals on the, on the way out at the end of the, any before the end of the year or are you done this year? Oh, well, I also went to Flatland Fest, but uh, as far as the others, I was really hoping to get to St. Louis this coming weekend, but unfortunately I don't think I can make it work. And they just announced a Pittsburgh Fest, which I also don't think I can get to work because I got a gig. Let's see what else do we have coming up. I think... That might be it for the year, um, but I'm gonna. But I didn't get to go to TurboFest last year because of bad scheduling choices on my part. So I'm gonna extend my year of festivals out <laughs> through the first week of January, and I'm gonna go to TurboFest. Hey, that one looks good too. That's where in in Canada, right? In uh, yeah, yeah, Quebec. Quebec. Yeah, that one looks really energetic. You know, what I mean, it looks like a lot of young talent, a lot of sort of yeah energy, and it, it seems exciting that one. Yeah, from what I understand, it's very youthful, and, and there are a lot of people who, who have been or are in circus school, so it's kind of a different vibe. So I think that sounds pretty cool. Well, let's backtrack a little bit to the yo-yo world, because yeah. obviously they must have yo-yo festivals or yo-yo conventions. Yeah, for yo-yoing, it's contests. Contests. It surrounds a competition. Yeah, and they're a lot of fun, too. This year, the World Yo-Yo Contest was in Iceland. I was oh. trying to get to that one, but I ran out of money before I could. <laughs> now, you were world champion in, in 1995. You actually, right. were there particular events or was there an overall world championship? Or how did they run their competitions? So in 95, it was before we hit the modern era of yo-yo contests. So the contest was a little different when I won it. But effectively, I won the division that is now considered 1A or the one-hand yo-yo division. And... At that time, there was the Masters division that I won, and then the Pro-Am. In order to win the Pro-Am division, you had to do two-hand yo-yoing. And I had gotten as high as third in that division in the past, but that particular year, I won the, the Masters division. And now there's five different divisions. There's one through five A, so there's all kinds of different ways to be a world champion. And how is the yo-yo sort of popularity in business right now? Do you think yo-yos are, are popular, or are they something that has waned with time, or... Where do you see the yo-yo at right now? Well, we had a huge boom in the mid-90s, sort of 94, 95-ish, when the, the Yomega yo-yo with a brain. <laughs> yo-yo with a clutch. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I thought that was terrible because it would just snap up on you sometimes. Well, yeah, it, that was my first reaction too. But the, the reality of it was that it brought yo-yoing to a vastly wider audience, yeah. that it made it accessible to people who thought they couldn't do it. And I was one of those kids as, when I was little. I, I thought the yo-yo was too hard for me. So I got a yo-yo ball, which is just spring-loaded and stupid. Yeah, yeah. So the brain actually did a lot for modern yo-yoing. And, but I would say the popularity is, is sort of low but steady now. We have a, a strong international community of people who are into it and stay into it. But 
it's really hard for anything to compete with how brilliantly video games are made now. So, well, wait till the virtual reality comes out, and then we're all doomed. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, really. You know, I played with those, those ball bearing yo-yos. Those are amazing. The ones They're with incredible. the that just they just sleep for what's the what's the record now for, for yo-yo sleeping? Like. 16 minutes know. or something? or Oh, it's way more than that. I don't yeah. know what the current record is, but the last time that I knew specifically, I was a judge for a world record attempt, and the guy who I was watching was, he missed the, the world record, setting the world record by 10 seconds, and it was over 23 minutes. So, so people, It's like a, almost like a gyroscope now, or like a ball on the end of a string. Because when I, when I watch the new yo-yo techniques, I'm like, how are they doing that? It's just so insanely complex. And I try yeah. some of these new yo-yos. I go, oh, okay. It's almost a trick in some ways, these new yo-yos. Well, the, the new, you know, the style adapts to what materials you have. Yeah. So in the 50s and 60s, a lot, most of the tricks were tricks where the yo-yo would go out and come back. Because even the world record holder at that time could only get a wood yo-yo to spin for maybe 10 seconds on a really good throw. Right. Whereas now, just, you know, on a normal throw, not in a, a, a long endurance throw, in a normal throw, you can get a yo-yo to spin for two, three minutes easy. And so that has enabled people to explore a different style of tricks where you're doing more manipulation of the string. Some people have called it string origami, but where you're hopping, your yo-yo is spinning, but you're hopping in and out of different string figures and different configurations, perhaps throwing a slack string around to catch back on the yo-yo or to go around a finger Ball bearing yo-yos have revolutionized yo-yoing and have really expanded the possibility, but it also has made a lot of the tricks that we see, like you say, where the yo-yo itself isn't taking, isn't always a huge part of each trick. For our listeners, if they wanted to go on YouTube and watch one new yo-yo player, like who would they watch? Like who is the man or who do you feel like would represent sort of the, the modern state of yo-yo? The best routine that I've ever seen, I'm trying to remember, I'm Googling his name right now. The most explosive yo-yo routine I've ever seen was last year's, well, that is in, um, when the contest was in Tokyo, the, the guy who won the 3A division. He, it, it's such a, a wonderful story. He has, he, he started as a, as a young guy, and Hank Freeman is an American, and he was the guy who had really revolutionized the division. So it's, it's using two long spinning yo-yos and doing string hands with both of them at the same time, one in each hand. And Hank had really revolutionized it. He'd done all these great tricks. And every year, this sweet little kid from Japan would come up and give Hank some sort of little present mm -hmm. and thank you for being my, my mentor and my idol. And then at the yo-yo contest in the world contest in Tokyo, he beat Hank and still after the contest came up and gave Hank a little gift, say, thank you so much for being my, my mentor and inspiring me. And it's just the, the routine that he did that time. There was no question that he should win. I believe his name is Hajime Miura and it's just so good. Like you, you have to check it out. Now, what do you think about competitions in general? Because you've also competed as a juggler. You won in uh, 1999 with the Mad Five and the team. Do you think uh, overall juggling and competition go well together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. So I, I have the ability to be hyper-competitive if, if I choose to be. I also have gotten out of control with competitiveness, and I think that's easy. What do you mean by that, but, out of control? Like like too competitive? Like it yeah. meant too much to you? or? Yeah, so... To me, 
the most important aspect of life is being happy and having fun and enjoying what you're doing. What's great about competitions and competitiveness is that you have a goal and a reason to force yourself, to push yourself to get better. Right. And that has been extremely valuable to me. As a yo-yo player, I wouldn't be the player I am today if I hadn't worked for so many years to win the World Yo-Yo Contest. And same thing with juggling. Uh, working for however many, I don't know, nine months or more with the Mad Five trying to perfect our passing routine that we won the IJA competition with, that was really valuable and made me a better juggler. But at the same time, if you push it too far, if, if you get too competitive and put too much value on winning, it can get really unfun. And I think that that's a shame. So I try to keep sort of in the middle in a happy medium. I think it's nice if people cannot think that the world will end if their team doesn't win the sports game. But, you know, comp competition has really great value as well. Now let's talk about some TV competitions because you also did America's Got Talent. Right. What was your experience on that show? Was it, was it positive? Was it be something you'd recommend to others? Or what was your takeaway from that? That was miserable. That was <laughs> okay. the experience of my entire life. Oh, okay. What, can you give us the story of that? I was invited to compete in America's Got Talent. And because I was invited, I got to skip the cattle call. My right. first appearance was in front of the judges in the Chicago Theater, so enormous theater with, you know, I think 2,500 people or something. So on camera. You're, so your first thing was an audition on camera. Yeah, on camera, oh, okay. live audience, pretty much ideal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I did a spin-top routine, and it went great. I didn't mess up at all. Right. I finished, and the audience was on their feet. It wasn't a universal standing O, but there were a lot of people standing. People were chanting, Vegas, Vegas. <laughs> they gotcha. you know, wanted me it to go on to the next round. Right. Yeah, so it was, it was great. One of the judges liked me. One was on the fence. The other one hated me. And so I smiled and winked at Sharon Osborne, and I, I'd like to believe that's what put her over the line. And uh, I was pushed on to the next level of okay. going to Las Vegas. And in Vegas, there, we were there for a long time, and it was really unpleasant. We were really treated as cattle, and we're not even respected as human beings. And they would serve us lunch as late as possible to try to draw out the day, and it was terrible. I, I've never had a less professional experience in my entire life. And when it came time for me to uh, do my routine on that stage, unfortunately, I made some mistakes. And I salvaged the performance for the, right. the few people who were in the audience. It was mostly an empty theater, but there were some people there. The performance itself was okay, but because I was in such a limited time schedule, I couldn't do the routine the way I normally would. And so the mistakes were pretty evident, and I was not able to come back right. around from it. And when the show aired, they only showed my mistakes. They didn't show a single second of the brilliant top routine in front of the wow. great audience in Chicago. They didn't show any of the successful parts of what I did in Vegas. They only showed the mistakes. And it, uh, it seems a little extreme looking back on it, but I was absolutely crushed. I mean, I was so humiliated and so mortified. Seems weird thinking about it now, but I actually considered quitting performing. I was so upset about it. Because I watch every season, and I don't, you know, from my perspective, I remember seeing you on the show, mm -hmm. but I don't remember pretty much anything else about that, except for that yeah. you were on the show, and that you were in the background. Yeah. So and... there were a lot of background shots of me yeah. with my, my group of entertainers. I really wasn't on the show that much, but, you know, I'm a professional. I have my pride. I wanted to do well. I wanted... And you did do well. And, that, and you, felt, you felt that you got shafted because you did do well. Right. And yet they choose only to use the stuff that fit their story of, well, this guy didn't make it. 
or right. whatever they, their story was. Exactly. I think that's the people's yeah. big fear is that they will be misrepresented on the show. Yeah, which is, which is what they're about. And the thing is that obviously I'm bitter, but, but I think you can look at it objectively. And if you look at I had such a wonderful experience on the, the Letterman show and on the Late Late Show with James Corden. Both of those shows, they have a positive attitude. They are so grateful that you're there to help them make the show succeed. It's wonderful. And what Corden and Letterman are selling is fun and happiness. And what America's Got Talent is selling is tears and crying, is, is bitterness. Well, they're, they're selling stories. They're selling they're human selling stories, interest. But yeah. they believe that the only good stories worth telling are sad stories. They will occasionally make someone sad so that they can make them happy again later, but they're really not interested in stories that don't have deep, deep sadness. And I don't agree with that as a method of offering entertainment. See, my feeling is that, you know, as far as the treatment, I've been on some places where, yeah, they hold you all day. They say they're going to shoot whatever. So I can, I can kind of deal with the fact that I'm treated like cattle or I'm treated as a, a cog in the machine and not really given my respect as an artist because, unfortunately— that is not uncommon. And I'm aware of that. And, and I, I'm okay with the hurry up and wait and the way that yeah. shooting TV and film works. That's fine with me. I understand that there are limitations to the medium. I was upset because we were not treated as humans. I mean, there, there's a certain minimum expectation of respect between two hmm. people sure. in our society, and that was not met. Interesting. Like, I never heard it was that bad. You know, like I say, I think it's unfair. I don't like unfairness in any way. So if I do a show, or I do a performance, and all of a sudden they cut it or they made it look like I didn't do well when I did well or whatever it is, that unfairness would really burn at me. So I could see, you know, your takeaway was they only use the bad stuff, and that, that has to suck. Right. What really kills me is that the next question, of course, is would you recommend it to anyone else? And that's not just an easy yes or no, because if you're someone like me who – needs to have impressive credits on my resume to uh, make myself more attractive to potential clients, I would say yes. If you're someone who's just a hobbyist and may have your heart broken by this, I would say no. I had a show last year where I handed them my introduction, and it was a big crowd, total mix, my favorite crowd, children, parents, and grandchildren, or sorry, children, parents, and grandparents. And they went through my introduction. They said, he's been on The Late Show with David Letterman twice, which is my most proud accolade. It got a little bit of a reaction from the crowd. He's been on The Late Night Show with James Corden, little reaction. He's been on the NBC Nightly News, the CBS Early Show, little reaction. And he's been on <laughs> America's Got Talent. Oh! And suddenly everyone was so impressed. And that is without question the worst gig I've had in my life. But it shows you. It shows you that if you're a professional – you have to look at the market and go, okay, what's out there? Mm -hmm. What can I try to use to my advantage? And certainly yeah. you can look at the acts that have been on that show and who have done very well. Of course, they have pretty much the top in our field, you know, whether it's Victor Key or mm -hmm. the Passing Zone. But they were doing well without the show. Yes, but I think they felt that they were kind of falling off the radar a little bit. Mm, you know, okay. that their, their exposure – this is my just takeaway from it. I, don't really, I never really asked them. This is what mm -hmm. I kind of assumed was that, you know, because you have to stay in the public's eye. Even the even us jugglers who aren't really famous, but the eyes of the bookers, the eyes of people hiring acts. Mm -hmm. So if you know if your credits are Carson or even Letterman nowadays, credits get old very fast. And now yeah. the only credit that really matters because of the size of the audience is America's Got Talent for variety. I wouldn't say it's the only one, but it's certainly the, the game changer. Right. You get on the James Corden Late Show and it's nice, but 
unless you do something that's so viral, it's just going to come and go. You get far in America's Got Talent, and it's a game changer. And there aren't that many game changers out there. So my answer is True. always yes, that you have to at least look at it, consider it, and see how you can bend it to your will. Is there a way you can make it work for yourself? Right. And if you can, you should go for it. Because I think too many people are scared. And when you start acting out of fear, like I'm mm -hmm. afraid I could look bad, well, then you start saying no to yourself. Yeah, and the best attitude you can have going into it is the one that my comedian friend Doogie Horner had when he was on. He was on with me, and he just didn't care about anything. <laughs> right, right. If it was ridiculous and hilarious, and he, his soul was not crushed by being on the show. He did well, and, and he, he came out a whole man. Well, we learned so much from our experiences, and now you've taken what you've learned, and now one of your new things is you're working on a keynote speech to go along with your, your juggling career. Can you tell us a little about the topic and what, what your speech is about? Yeah, so working on makes it sound like it's not finished, but actually I've been performing it. I've been, uh, <laughs> well, been booking it. It's always a work while. in progress, though, right? That is for sure, yeah. So my topic is the art of failure and how failure is a critical element on the path to success. And yeah, without my America's Got Talent experience, I wouldn't have been able to present this topic. But it's something that is, I think, relevant to all humans, and I feel like at this point in our culture, we have an epidemic fear of failure, that people, especially kids, feel like failure is equivalent to death. There are so many great things that come out of being open to it and learning how to fail appropriately. And you know, of course, you've got good failure and bad failure. You don't want your brain surgeon to be making mistakes and laughing it off, but <laughs> right, right. it's important to, to learn how to do it right. And I've, I've had some great success presenting this speech both in the corporate market at, for research and development teams and uh, things like that. But also I've been doing some high schools and even some elementary schools. And it's, uh, it, it's a topic that I think is pretty universal. And you use your variety of skills and your juggling incorporated in the speech? I do, yeah. And especially my, what is, has become my signature routine, my with the mousetrap and the marshmallow, that one is, is a really great illustration. Of, Let's lay that out. So you have a blowgun and, and, a, and a trap. I've got a mousetrap that I set up. I put a marshmallow on the mousetrap. I take a few steps back. I shoot the trap with a blowgun. Marshmallow flies through the air, and I catch it in my mouth. And then I move on to a rat trap. So the marshmallow right. goes higher and farther, and I finish with a wombat trap, which is enormous, that shoots three juggling balls at me at once, and I juggle them. Right. And what's really interesting to me is that when I wrote that routine, my expectation and my plan was that at some point it would be perfect. It would be so good that I would catch every marshmallow every time. I'd hit the target with a blowgun every time. There'd be no misses. I'd get it. I'd be done. Right. And when I finally got to that point, I performed it a couple times, and it was kind of boring. And I realized it's so much better if I miss. <laughs> it makes it more excite more like there's more it's, tension yeah it's so much more exciting so much more interesting and you know most of the time i don't have to try to miss <laughs> most <laughs> of the time it happens by itself but sure. it, i also occasionally when i hit everything just right i do have to put an intentional miss or two into the routine to give it that edge interesting yeah because some, some tricks are like that usually the ones that happen very quickly like i found that yeah. with like six shaker cups i used to do eight at one time but that was mm. That was too much failure for me to take. Right. But I, when I did even six, I found like, okay, three at the right, three at the left, boom. Mm -hmm. But if you mess it up five or six times and just get crazier and crazier and you finally mm. hit it. Yeah. 
So like, sometimes, sometimes failure is good. Yeah, and also it gives the, the audience a chance to understand what's happening, because especially with something like Shaker Cups or the Mousetrap and Marshmallow, they may not totally understand what's going on. And if it just happens too fast and it's over, they've missed their chance to understand and appreciate it. When I was on Letterman, I did the Mousetrap and the Marshmallow on that show, I missed two times before I got it. They edited out one of the the right. misses, but I missed in every way I could. I missed the target, I missed <laughs> the marshmallow, like everything was wrong. But when I hit it, it was an explosion in that studio. I got the biggest reaction of everything in that entire show. It was really crazy. It's nice too that let you do it because that's the thing on some of the people don't realize on some of the shows, like when we did like, you know, Carson back in the day, mm-hmm. it was like they weren't gonna let not let you look bad if you looked bad. Like right. if we if we didn't catch our last trick or whatever, we had to walk off in failure. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, "Well, that's how it went," you know. That's right. how the cookie crumbled. I think the problem with failure nowadays is that it's too public. Like before, yeah. they had videos and everybody with their cell phones out. Mm-hmm. I had an experience yesterday where I was walking. I take a nightly walk. I walk a lot around my neighborhood, and I have my swords. So, you know, I've had this new thing where I'm using swords, and I mm-hmm. like to walk with them with one in each hand and do like kind of a manipulation. And this kid sees me across the street. And instead of like coming up and saying, hey, what are you doing? And that's interesting. He like ambushes me with his camera. Mm-hmm. And like, hey. And I'm like, okay. I just thought it was so silly. That to me was such a strange interaction. That right. I, don't wanna, I just want to capture something of you that maybe I can use. But I have no mm-hmm. interest in you as an actual person. Yes. But I think nowadays it's hard to feel like I can fail and not have it live on in infamy forever on the internet. Yeah, I think that we've seen the effect of that in the Renegade show, in the acts, and what people are willing to do on Renegade. It changes it very much. If you think that what you do might go online forever and ever, you're less likely to do the really crazy stuff on the Renegade stage. Oh, because I'm not really a Renegade guy. It's like too late at night for me, and there's a little bit too mm-hmm. much, uh, I don't want to say, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff that doesn't entertain me, but there's sure. always good moments. There's mm-hmm. always stuff I'm like, this guy does not know how to entertain, and yet he's up there entertaining. So Yeah, and, and Renegade is not for everyone, but one of the most beautiful things about it is that it's open to whatever you want to do. Yeah. And that includes if something's gross and nasty or if it's really impressive, sort of it's, it's just an open stage. But I have noticed that there is some fear of things being recorded and people aren't willing to get quite as wild as they were when I started juggling. It's funny, when I started my solo thing again, because like in 2008, you know, Barry wanted to slow down and focus on his coaching and his sugar-free uh, seminars and stuff he does. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I want to go back out and I'm not ready to stop. I want to do another eight, ten years. Mm-hmm. I went back to the Pier 39. I started performing. And I was really afraid that people would mm-hmm. videotape me and I'd work on something. And, and at a certain point, I'm like, how come I don't see anything of me on the Internet? <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it, never, it turned out to be a fear that was totally baseless for me. Also, I like to feel I have a certain caliber where even my you know, worst mistakes aren't something I'd be that ashamed of. And also, when sure. things are on the internet, unless it's really bad, you see something with 40 views or, or 85 views, you can mm-hmm. just shrug that off. But when something goes really bad, and you go mm-hmm. like, wow. Because that was my thing when I was young, uh, you know, doing TV shows. I just thought, okay, good or bad, just don't let me do something that will embarrass me the rest of my life. That will, like, mm-hmm. every moment I look back on that, because I've seen people on TV. I saw a guy one time, like, blank. He was a comedian. He, like, blanked. He forgot mm-hmm. his routine and had to just sort of stop. And you see some jugglers who have, you know, had some moment. My favorite classic one is always Edward Jackman, who, you know, he played it off great. But he basically fell on his butt. Like, he, he did try to trick a double pirouette. His legs shot out from underneath him. So you had to go, like, that was a moment. 
that mm-hmm. people were, that will live on in infamy. So nowadays it's hard. It's hard to fail. But like you said, the feel of fail- failure is paralyzing. You got to mm-hmm. get over that. I think this idea of your, of your, the art of failure or the importance of failure is really important. And you got to do it at TEDx Lawrence. Yeah. What do you think about the TEDx experience? Oh, it was great. But, you know, it's, it's funny, like, how appropriate it was for my topic that I knew that no matter how it went, it was going online to be seen literally by the entire world on a massive platform. So to protect myself against doing badly, man, I, I rehearsed that speech like I've never rehearsed anything. I was doing it three, four times a day for two weeks straight once I had it really cemented in. Well, that's what it takes. I mean, people sometimes don't realize that. I always think like, uh, you know, when people are starting their career, like you can mm-hmm. be like a rocket, meaning you can put a tremendous amount of work and then blast off and then kind of coast. Mm-hmm. But some people, they want to coast from the start. Like they right. don't want to put the work even from the start. They want to like work just at a certain pace. And I'm thinking that ain't going to get it done. You got to like, especially those first few years. When you want something to be good, like a, a TEDx, like I mean, we did TED last January or maybe a year ago in Vancouver. We will, I've only done, I've done one TEDx, but I've done six of the worldwide TEDs. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a tough one because um, the thing about them is you want, of course, to have it put on their website because right. of the number of views, but they don't put everything on the site. They put a very small right. selection. So you can yeah. do that one and get really no other exposure other than what you get there at the event. But these mm-hmm. TEDx's, I think they put everything online. Well, and, and there's also a, a bit of a, I think it's a hierarchy that the E in TED is for entertainment. So they have speakers and entertainers. And I think that the entertainers tend to not get the same kind of attention on the website. I was fortunate that I was there as a speaker, so I was guaranteed to have my speech get up on the website. But yeah, even even there, there seems to be a little bit of a hierarchy. Well, it's difficult and the, as far as the content. And unless... You're a famous performer or doing something, I don't know, but the juggling, I think, was, uh, and for us, once again, doing TED was an opportunity to hopefully get exposure to try to revitalize our career at that time. This was, I think, yeah, one or two years ago we did it, the last time. Mm -hmm. And um, it's difficult to talk about the situations. Like for us, they put us on the first act of the morning, like Mm -hmm. nine o'clock in the morning. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I watched Marco Tempest the day before. I don't know if you know who he is. If, if you don't, no. look him up. A brilliant magician who, who really is smart because he combines technology with magic. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, that's a really good sell, a really good field to be in, you know, in both the, the corporate world but also like Ted. Like in his, in his mm-hmm. thing, he used a robot. Like he did a, a car trick with a <laughs> robot. And I thought, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And he just got a good response. Not a great response, but just okay and he's had the same spot as us the day before hmm. and i thought oh we're in trouble <laughs> you know <laughs> but we did well and we wanted it to be seen of course but they chose like you say i think there's a lot of other talks and speeches that are more important mm-hmm. but that, that brings us to the future because we've kind of come to the end of our time with mark hayward it went mm-hmm. very quickly but where's yeah. the future going what's what are the plans uh moving forward for you well i'm i'm now back in madison wisconsin just moved back here in april you know, first, the first order of business is just reestablishing my local and regional network so I can work close to home. My career plan has always been to make a living doing what I love, and I intentionally phrased it sort of vaguely so it could be whatever right. was interesting me at the time. 
at the moment, I'm still absolutely loving performing, and uh, I've in, been enjoying getting into the, the keynote speaking world, so I hope that that continues to roll. And going to more juggling conventions. I can't wait to keep seeing all my awesome juggling friends as much as possible. Well, let me thank you once again for being the king of snacks at the IHA and everything you, everything you did at the IHA. And it was a real pleasure to see you and out in Portland as well. And I hope to see you at some yeah. festivals uh, over the course of the years. And thank you so much, Mark Hayward, for being on the Drop Everything podcast. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 52 in the Drop Everything series, my conversation with Mark Hayward. Thank you, Mark. Let's also thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. Looking for jugglers? Juggling props, juggling videos, information about their yearly festival, and so much more can be found at juggle.org. So don't delay. Go to juggle.org today. Hey, also get yourself a ring dama. They're fresh from the presses. And also the LED ring dama is now available from Zing Toys. So go to ringdama.com, that's R-A-N-G-D-A-M-A.com, or Zing Toys at zingtoys.com. Pick up the hottest new skill toy there is today. So next time you listen to Drop Everything, you can do it while wearing your ring dama. All right, get out there in the world, drop everything, except when you're juggling.